Hello. Welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino and with me is Toby Kent. Hey, Matt. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 4. We're super excited to be here. And believe it or not, Toby, we've just done about 20 minutes of recording that we didn't record. How do you feel right now? I mean, I was kind of uplifted. I liked where it was going. I felt the conversation was good. I feel like you've just unnecessarily aired our filthy laundry. No one needed to know that we were... I think it makes us seem human. People think we're superhuman, Toby, and it's good to... Do they? (laughs) I don't think so. Why why do I not see the messages that tell us we're superhuman? I don't show you those ones. Yeah, Uh, it's because you read them as, Matt, you're superhuman. Yes, yes, yes. I I ignore the Toby part of that, um, those emails. No, but I, I mean, on that level of excitement, Toby... It was, it was there because it was going into a good place, but it happened for a reason. I guess what's been happening in your life recently, Toby, that's, that's been less than ideal or, or been a little challenge? Why do we have to start there? I, I, I'm much more excited by your wrestling pumpkins. Well, the reason I brought this up, I guess, was you were discussing how, you know, post-pandemic, I know that the pandemic's still going and it's still affecting many people, but post-lockdowns, I guess, and the intrusion in our lives i don't know if there's been a full recovery there seems that the cost of living crisis around the world in australia has been affecting us and and that you know there are tough times that are presently happening tough times ahead and uh i know that uh, recently listening on the radio to the ceo of the smith family discussing how that more people are in need of their services um than during the pandemic and that the there are many new families and new faces that are actually asking for the services of the Smith family or requiring the services of the Smith family, especially in schools um, but beyond as well. So it just shows that there are concerns and issues that people are, are facing around cost of living. And from that, I guess, uh, the busyness and the, and the uncertainty that is coming. And, and our guest today, Aaron Wood, who we're going to introduce a bit later on, talked about a bit of his reflections about that idea of constantly saying you're busy and this idea of of not having any time or focus and um and i guess the 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 levity is that we need to try if we can to get out a bit more and and just talking about the cost of living crisis i then went and spent some money on seeing a, a show recently uh the smashing pumpkins along with jane's addiction amel and the sniffers and a troupe of wrestling athletes that were brought there for Billy Corgan, the singer of the Smashing Pumpkins, owns a wrestling company and, you know, brought them down to Australia to perform. Do you think it's in his writer? Like when others are like bands play, like we want six bottles of whiskey and this and whatever, and they're like, you have to employ my wrestling troupe. I think it, it must be part of it now. It was great though. It was exceptional. I didn't know what to expect. but The bands or the wrestling? Both. The bands were good. I love the wrestling. I mean, I loved everything. I, but I was there for the music and I was pleasantly surprised. Because you surprised. knew you the music. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, well, look, the, the walked in. It was like a festival feel. I had the, the food trucks there. There was a wrestling ring set up and uh, the, we got a bit late. So the Amel and the Sniffers, who I don't really know very well, but I, don't, I know what Amel is. I know that you sniff it and I know things, brain cells can be damaged as well as... Uh, Wrexham's relaxed, I believe. It's true. So to, to not be damaged, I guess. Um, <laughs> but the brain cells <laughs> take a hard hit. And um, and then following that was the 
the wrestling that was outside where the food trucks were and I was just because we got there late we said let's wait right at the front. Did they have a Mexican food truck? They did, tacos. Yeah. Um, so, but no Mexican wrestling. There were, wasn't Mexican wrestling but the doubles partnership had a had a bit of an accent. They were from the, the States but they were wearing sort of face paint masks mm-hmm. and had a bit of an accent to them. So they could have been Latino wrestlers. Um, but I'm probably throwing that in there without knowing for sure. But I know that there's a huge amount of Mexican wrestling out there. So quite possibly from out my... Out there or in Mexico? Out there, out, out there. there. They go exactly. beyond Mexico and they um, they look to spread the, the Mexican wrestling style. Rey Mysterio Jr. was one of the great wrestlers from Mexico yeah, that I remember. Yeah. Maybe he was Rey Mysterio himself was better and it was just his... At my young age, I just know his son potentially. But... Lots of acrobatics, but it was great. It was really great. Ringside, fantastic. Got yelled at by a six foot six big dude right in my face. Like? I do like it. I, you know, as a general thing. Um, look, he stayed on his side of the fence. I was on mine. I felt safe. Right. But when it happens um, in in closer quarters, I'm 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 concerned. I'm right, concerned. So it was the, oh, also, the spectacle that made it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's not why you went into teaching, so you can just have loads of people shouting. No, at you. no, but it, hap- it, it can happen occasionally, sadly. Yeah. So look, on that note, it was a positive night. We had it was great fun. You got to see the '90s classics of of uh, both Jane's Addiction, who who performed so well. Uh, they had some dancers on the stage and all this. Fun stuff going on, and then Smashing Pumpkins came on and sung. I think he would—he was losing his voice a bit. I'll admit it. I'll—he I'll, uh, wasn't at the top of his game. Billy, the, the band was it was really loud, so it was a bit covered up. They did um, an acoustic cover of "Under the Milky Way Tonight" by the Church, Australian classic. So, you know, they were trying to get a local feel going on, but it was—it was great. You know, all the classics. 1979 by the Smashing Pumpkins, Toby, could be in my top five to ten songs ever. Wow. And I got to see it live. So that was nice. That was nice. Yeah. And I think we've only had one guest who's sung. You, you want to give it a go? Ash. Uh, yeah, Ash Sandler. Great, great yeah. But Ash comes up again later on in the interview. So Yes, yes, you mentioned yeah. him. Um, he's worthy of a mention, especially after he sung. I, I think he won't be forgotten. Do you know the song 1979? No, that's why I'm no. interested <laughs> to hear how it goes. <laughs> let's put it in. Uh, let's splice it in at some point. Maybe. If I can get that editing technique, we should. Yeah. Now, on other exciting things, and not being so busy, hopefully, you've had a trip to Bali. And I think, as is often the way in our conversations, Bali was amazing, but it also kind of gave us pause, cause, pause, to reflect. Yeah, I just thought before we introduce Aaron, just getting some thoughts on your time, having had a chance to step outside of, the Australian island for a bit? It's been a while. Yeah. Um, first of all, haven't travelled overseas since probably 2018 and it was the first time travelling or getting on a plane with two kids under 27 months. Oh, wow, well, yeah. And it's <laughs> legally. Legally. Oh, yeah, yeah, when I, when I uh, import them from <laughs> various countries. Um, but I'm not usually there with them, you know, that's for the handlers. So... Um, <laughs> But uh, no, definitely against. I think we can safely say we're against child importation, or, or exportation, or exportation, or any, any form Import of export, child abuse moving across or, borders. Yeah, all yeah. of that, just to put it out there. But 
Um, I took legally my two children across and they were great. And, you know, I was really nervous. And when we talk about this busy life and winding down and things, when I got there, got to this beautiful villa in Ubud, beautiful place, and there's a pool. It's, it's amazing, great weather. I couldn't relax for the first 36 hours. I almost thought, what are we doing here? Like why? what sort of um, stupidity brought us here with two kids and, you know, it's the school holidays. I wanted to wind down and here we are looking after them, changing the nappy here. They've This has got wet. There's mosquitoes. You know, I just thought of the negatives. And then 36 hours into it, I was able to just decompress a little bit after the really tough end of term actually. And... Um, yeah, it was, it was incredible. Loved it, loved it. Loved Ubud. Really loved our holiday. The kids were fantastic. They grew so much. Like they were different people from wow. arrival to departure. Even little 10-month-old Julian, he changed, you know. I don't know. Sure you brought, brought the wrong <laughs> child back? <laughs> he looked completely <laughs> different. <laughs> and he was 16. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> no, they just... Transformed and and you know I think we did too Lauren and I um, and we loved Ubud it was really it felt like the real Bali in a way especially being a bit outside um, of the the centre where a lot of the tourism is you know we got to eat at local places talk to local people look at the the rice fields and talk to farmers and just I felt like yeah it was stimulating the economy a little bit everyone was saying how hard COVID was it was great to have you back that sort of thing. And then we moved down to the beach, the Seminyak area. We had a wedding on and um, we got there and it was just a change of of pace, a change of vibe. It was great. The people that we were with were amazing, incredible people. We loved every minute with them. But in terms of the, the, the actual location, yes, it's got great restaurants, shops, it's the heat, whatever, but it was just a overbuilt, overcrowded concrete jungle with all Western names and, and mm. Western restaurants and Western owners – and I was told this by many Balinese people that it's actually mostly non-Balinese Indonesians there too. Not that that's an issue necessarily on my my point. Everyone deserves to get a job where they, they can. But that the Balinese people feel that they're actually not the first on the rank to get these yeah, jobs right, at these yeah. areas, even though it's their their island, you know. Mm. Um, and I just sort of saw through the, the little facade in that part yeah. of this paradise to some of the issues that are there and and it made me think should I be here firstly it's like should I be here should I what who should I support how should I support Mm -hmm. and and I just felt at times conflicted (laughs) with with you know my holiday and my fun and my private pool you know and then looking at how others almost serve us and then I was annoyed at walking down the street and I'm getting harassed every two minutes by someone saying, you want to ride, you want to do this, do you want to go down here, do you want to buy this? And and I just realised I can't be upset at that because, you know, we're going there trying to get this cheaper holiday from this, you know, from I don't know what it would cost in Australia for the same thing but maybe ten times the amount. I don't know. For yeah. the amount of service and care that we got and the amazing places. So I'm not sure but, yeah, I mean you take that but it just made me think, yeah, what have we done to this island paradise? We've made it um, require tourism in a way and that's COVID showed that and, mm-hmm. the, and the stories I got. But then also we've made it lose some of the fabric of what made it special, especially along the beach. 
yeah, and the pollution and, and everything that was there. And it's not the bar, the people's fault. It's not the locals' fault. It's the fault of us as tourists. So I just I struggled to stay present and happy and in the moment while deliberating these things. But but I guess my my way of trying was to find locals as much as possible to 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 engage with and to support, but then also to ask questions and just find out what their their opinion was. And they they had mixed feelings too. They didn't really have a get out of here mindset, nor did they have a it's great that you're here mindset. It was a we're unsure how mm-hmm. how we feel about this too. So you're not when you're not the only one. So it was my first time there. I would go back. I think I would do more of the the smaller towns and try to leave as little footprint as possible next time. But but it was a great holiday. I recommend it. But I think it is just a moment. Travelling overseas, you realise how lucky we are in Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, tap water, things like that, that just we take for granted that we get clean showers, let alone clean tap water. Whereas I ended up with a ear infection and a very sore stomach <laughs> upon leaving because just jumping in a pool or no. accidentally brushing my teeth with, yeah, the tap water or whatever, you know. So and it's interesting touched on the, the benefits and, and privilege of good water and you've spoken about the challenge and pollution and use the phrase, who should I support and how should I support them? All of which makes me think of our guest, Aaron Wood, who got into his career, not just got into it, but kind of framed it by firstly working with what here in Australia or certainly Victoria we call a catchment management authority. So a body that was created to manage all of the things flowing into catchments of significant waterways and then how he built his business, Kids Teaching Kids, coming out of that right through to his time as the Deputy Lord Mayor of the City of Melbourne and indeed Acting Lord Mayor uh, during a particularly challenging time for the council. So I wonder if it's time for us to introduce Aaron. Aaron Wood, everyone. Aaron, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the chat. Yeah, so are we, so are we. So just to get started, Aaron, um, for those that may not know you, can you give us a little bit of a brief introduction to who you are and what you're up to at the moment? So should I start in grade six because that was a really good year for me? Grade five, grade six, <laughs> any time you want. <laughs> no, look, I, I um, grew up in Mildura, in country Mildura, on the mighty Murray River up there, a beautiful, beautiful childhood uh, Lots of being out in nature as well, which I think shaped who I am today. Uh, I think for me, you know, went to university, did forest science um, and went into the water industry quite early on. From there, I think what's guided me is just everything that I've taken on has been through a sustainability lens. I like to say long before green was the new black. (laughs) Yeah. You know, lots of people are passionate about it now, but... um, yeah, any career or, or initiative that I took on had a sustainability lens to it. Um, but very early on, I was lucky enough to find my real passion. And that was um, was starting the Kids Teaching Kids program, which was a, which is uh, an environmental sustainability leadership program. So, and uh, did that for a couple of decades. Along the way, I've been on lots of boards and committees. Um, I'm still on the Southeast Water Board. I'm currently at the Clean Energy Council as the Chief Policy and Impact Officer, but. Um, 
also spent eight years in local government and uh, was the Deputy Lord Mayor of the world's most liberal city. It was the world's most liberal city seven years in a row and I take full credit for that. <laughs> it must have been pretty much almost t- lined up with your time exactly. Exactly. Right? <laughs> as soon as I wasn't there, it just went downhill from, from there. So it's, it's all, all down to me. No, funnily enough, it was... Uh, seven out of the eight years that I was uh, on council, we were world's most liberal city. So there's only one common denominator there and that, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and on the world's most livable places, for those listeners who are overseas and those rare people who may not have heard of Mildura, which is obviously you, you mentioned where you grew up. Who, who hasn't heard of Mildura? Oh well, very shortly, <laughs> no one. Because you're just, so just give us a little, you know, tell us a bit of country town, country yeah. Victoria. What was it like growing up there? What's the town like? My amazing uh, childhood. Like I, I just think about how um, what a gift I had growing up in that environment because I think you take it for granted that everyone grows up experiencing nature. That's not true. You know, we would work with schools in kids teaching kids where they'd be in a major city and most of that schoolyard was was asphalt and bricks. So that ability to engage experientially with nature wasn't something that, well, isn't something that everyone gets to grow up with. But we, when I talk about growing up on the Murray River, a billabong was literally our front yard. So I'm talking, you know, you look out your window and, and there's a billabong, um, which for, you know, if there's any American listeners, it's a horseshoe lake. Um, when I actually, I, funnily enough, I got one of my experiences that I got was um, to present at the United Nations in New York and I made this address and I thought I'd done a wonderful kind of presentation and I mentioned growing up on, on, on the billabong in, in Mildura and I think one of the participants was quite distracted by my Australian accent. She came up the end and she said, you own billabong? And I was like, no, 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 not Billabong, the clothing company, you know. And, and I think it, but like not long after that their share price went down. So I was like, I was glad not to own, mm. own Billabong. But, no, look, an amazing childhood. Grew up there with my brother. Um, my father was actually my primary school principal and, again, shaped a lot of my views on the world. Education, I think, is um, something that I see as just so important. And it's not just formal education but it's community education and how we all learn and, and interact with each other. Um, how we come to the common understanding of things as well because I think a lot of the issues that we have in the world is is where, you know, we're just coming at, at from sixes and sevens and as soon as you go through some form of education process, particularly if you can do that together, uh, often you get to a pretty good outcome. So dad, primary school principal, um, my mum a social worker, uh, I wasn't the best behaved student. I spent a lot of time in his office, probably uh, <laughs> more than any other child in the school. Um I do like to joke about the fact, though, that uh, once I started up Kids Teaching Kids, uh, Dad came to work for me and I put him on minimum wage just as a bit of payback. So <laughs> he does say that he can go to a much higher power than me, though, and that's my mum, so I've got to be got to be a little bit careful. But, yeah, an amazing childhood just being out there on the billabong, you know, going fishing, riding my bike. My brother and I would sort of disappear on a Saturday morning. We wouldn't come back till, you know, the, the call was out for it's dinner time. I wasn't born saying I want to be an environmentalist. I just grew up loving the environment and that sort of translated to, yeah, a lot of the sustainability um, steps that I've taken throughout my career and my, my personal life as well. Yeah, that, that seems to be a common experience for many people involved in sustainability or the environment is growing up with nature surrounding them. I mean, that's telling that mm. we've got most of our population living in the city yeah. And not being exposed, as you said, and, and yet they're the decision-makers at the end of the day in many cases. Well, you look at Australia too and, and I think we see ourselves as a, as a country which is you know, wide open plains and lots of, of, of nature, which, which it's true, 
but we're also one of the highest, you know, in terms of urban population, we're one of the most urbanised populations in the world. I think we're, and Toby, you know, you know this just as well as anyone. I think we're up over eighty percent in terms. We're over eighty percent, um, and basically, it's only city states like Singapore that are really ahead of us. Yeah, and so the UN talks about, you know as the world becomes increasingly um, urbanised, and they're talking about once it's pushing past 50% and so on, whereas really Australia is, is so far so far out there in terms of urbanisation. So I, I think, you know, there's a quote by David Attborough, who again is a big uh, – has shaped a lot of my my early years as well. Um, you know, he, he, he says something along the lines of, you know, as we remove ourselves from nature, we become greatly impoverished. Mm-hmm. Um, so it isn't just this idea of kind of being – out there, it's experiencing nature. We are literally part of the natural system. We are we are not living above it in any way, shape, or form, and that presents in all sorts of research projects around rates of mental illness. The fact that even you know kids with ADD will you know if they're out in a green open space, perhaps experience less severe episodes. Um, all sorts of things leading us to the idea that we should be seeing ourselves as part of nature, not not separate from it. And with nature you know, being such a big part of your life and and it started like that. When was the moment that you thought that you needed to search for some solutions? I, I, rem- I heard a story of you jumping in your billabong one day and, and it and it changed the way you saw what Absolutely. was going on. Yeah, yeah. It's a... It's funny because you know when you, when you write a book, they always want to find that moment of you know what what, what happened was there's this and and initially I was kind of like well just it's, I just grew up and I loved nature and you know I saw things happening and stuff and but they were like but what was the moment that it really hit for you and I thought well there's probably a, a few moments along the way but that one that you mentioned diving into the billabong after school was one of the you know the great excitements that my brother and I would have like it'd be like 45 degrees in the shade in Mildura and we'd come home from school and go running down the 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 front yard which was which was quite hilly for Mildura there's not many hills in Mildura it's a very flat place Um, we'd go running down that grass kind of embankment and just plow headlong into into the billabong and and the top part of it was almost like you you'd been in a bath you know that's how warm it was but you could dive down deeper and and it was 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 cold and it was just a beautiful beautiful thing to experience that but one day when I was quite quite young I came out and I had a rash from head to toe and sort of said to my dad what what the heck's going on here and it was it was blue green algal blooms which are often caused by you know nutrient runoff overuse of fertilizer you know forms of pollution or even, you know, low low flows in, an, in a river system because we're taking too much water out and we've put in dams and weirs and so on. And to me that was really sad, you know. It wasn't, again, just about nature. It was about the fact that, you know, we need clean water because it produces a lot of the food that we eat. So um, it has a big impact on our own health. And And as time went on, I guess what I looked for more and more was it wasn't so much, um, and I'm not talking down people who, who just talk about we just should save this place because it's beautiful because I think you know, there, there's a lot in that as well. But more and more what I looked for was what are, what are all the reasons that we need nature? Um, and they become much more profound in terms of the economic productivity that nature delivers, the fact that, you know, tourism, you know, outstrips a lot of uh, sort of fossil fuel mining in, in certain areas the fact that you know the food we produce relies on clean water and 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 good quality environment um the list just goes on so it really is the old triple bottom line thing you know um that 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 nature is is about people it's about planet and it is about 
about economic productivity as well. And, and so at some points you, there you are diving into the billabong, coming out rash, covered, and then kind of winding forwards a bit. You obviously went on to set up Kids Teaching Kids, an environmental program to do just as the name describes, Kids Helping. So can you just give us a bit of a snapshot or a bridge between the billabong moment and... Yeah. Kind of, yeah, yeah absolutely. I think, I think the bridge there is sort of growing up, again, that, that passion for the environment still being, you know, emanating from my early childhood years and then already in, you know, sort of year seven and eight starting to go, I want to work in the environmental field, what is it? And sort of as I got through high school, initially I started out I wanted to be a zoologist because I just loved animals. I, and then I thought a marine biologist, which is really difficult for Mildura given we're about six hours from the coast uh, in it England. It does have billabongs. It you does have billabongs. Exactly. Yeah. It could have been, you know, who, who knows this new marine species that we could have found <laughs> in the River Murray. But... Um, I kind of started cycling through all these all these careers and, and actually settled, settled on forest science because it had a lot of, um, well, it, it was multidisciplinary. So it had, you know, water science in it, it had biodiversity, it had the economics of the environment. So you had to do a couple of, couple of uh, semesters of economics and macro and microeconomics, which was my favourite subjects, I must admit. But um, so, so that bridge really between that and then choosing a career in the environment wasn't a great leap at all. It was like early on I kind of I – I didn't realise how lucky I was to discover my passion. You know, you, you meet people who didn't really do what they were passionate about until they were 40, 50, you know, sometimes even older. Um, but I was on that path from a, from a very young age and then it was just about finding, well, what's the sort of qualifications I need to get into the career? And then it was – testing out what career I wanted to do. I worked for a water authority. I actually worked for local government all the way back then on a short-term contract as an environmental officer um, and um, and then landed at what I, I consider my first real job, which was the Mallee Catchment Management Authority. And that was the first establishment of the Catchment Management Authority um, construct here in Australia where um, what we saw in the state of Victoria was um, the establishment of these areas, catchments, where authorities were put in place to literally manage the water and the land and how that interacted together. And it was quite a, quite a novel thing um, with some eminent professors and academia coming up with integrated water management and, and so on as, as its underpinning. But at the, at the crux of that, I was a waterway floodplain manager. So what I, my role was was to actually manage the waterways and the floodplains. Straight away I um, started interacting with a lot of farmers I'd come out of uni thinking I knew everything. We were talking about better management of the frontages, the water, the stream frontages, which was, you know, that land um, that bordered on farming land and into the waterways. Uh, and I remember distinctly that I took this great presentation that I had about how we could manage the waterways better and um, I presented it to a room full of farmers in a small community hall and uh, within about sort of five minutes of me launching into my presentation one of the biggest farmers in the room was like, this is bullshit and let's step outside and I don't think it was for a cup of tea. <laughs> and, and, and so there was a few experiences like that where everything that I was trying to achieve, you often had the technical solutions, sometimes you had the financial um, support, not always. Often there was will from important stakeholders but it, it just all came back to this kind of community or education standpoint. Like, uh, how do you bring the wider community along with you? Um, as, as I said, my dad, school principal, 
um, he'd then moved to Mildura West Primary School. Um, they were sort of working out how did they engage some of their students who were struggling with learning in the traditional classroom, how could they engage them um, and, and, and really get them, you know, involved in learning again and play to their strengths as well because a lot of these kids were failing in terms of numeracy and literacy. Um, so Dad's solution was, I want to get them out of the classroom. Um, they'd adopted a local island called Lock Island um, in, in Mildura on the Murray River and at the same time I was going, well, how do I get the wider community involved in what I saw as this such important issue that we needed to do better for our environment at the time was all about the River Murray. Um, and over a few dinner table conversations it was like, well, can you work with, with our students and, you know, get them to take on some environmental education? And initially it started out with me thinking that I had to give them my knowledge, which, um, you know, interestingly enough, as soon as you work with students, and, and you know this well, is that, you know, they are just amazing. Once you give them the information and you give them the skills to actually manage their own learning, obviously it's not like go and do your own thing. There's there's a real – in Kids Teaching Kids, it's a real methodology. There's a model. You know, you follow a step-by-step process. But the whole premise of Kids Teaching Kids is to empower students to actually teach each other. And we, we started out with a tiny little project where, you know, some of them chose riparian vegetation, some of them chose flooding, some of them chose um, Aboriginal connection to water. And then they did a 10-minute presentation on the day – um, at a series of signs that I'd got money for, interpretive signs, and they were literally standing at the signs and we invited a whole heap of adults and local politicians and things and Mildura being a small town, basically everyone turned up and these kids delivered these unbelievable presentations. But it was the impact that even then that we had other students there because we had the, um, the sort of grade ones and twos coming along to see the grade fives and sixes doing the teaching and it was actually the impact on the on the, the the students and their engagement with with what their peers were doing. There was something pretty special there, and that's really where Kids Teaching Kids was born from. And it's gone on to have 145,000 students through the program uh, over two decades, um, delivered in South Korea, delivered in the North and South Island in New Zealand. Um, you know, resulted in me doing that presentation at the United Nations in New York. And continues to go from strength to strength now with with Earthwatch Australia. So um, the whole premise of that is the kids take uh, pick a topic that they're interested in. So you know it's it's contextual. So a student in you know in Narrabri in in the middle of Australia might choose. Well, how do I make cotton farming more more sustainable? Um, a student from the coast might be talking about. Well, how do we make the Great Barrier Reef? You know, how do we how do we save the Great Barrier Reef? And then they work in teams, so it's a cooperative learning approach. So what you actually get is it works really well with students that are that are that are finding that they've got learning difficulties or maybe behavioural issues. Um, we're not saying to them, "Hey, tell us what you're really bad at, and we'll put you up on stage and try and get you to we'll try and fix that." What we're saying is a, a child who has has some different ways of learning might be really good on the PowerPoint presentation, or you know can literally map out the the play that they're going to use or performance they're going to use, and it has to use all the different learning types. We actually take them through how people learn, and um, so what you come up with isn't a boring lecture. It's like you know they introduce their topic, they might have a role play, they might have put together a vo- video using multimedia. Um, yeah, all sorts of different forms of storytelling. And interestingly, with those kids that will say, well, I can't get up in front of other students, that's not something I can do confidence-wise. We're in there in that cooperative learning environment and in a supportive, safe environment 
what happens is that child who started off going, I'll just do the stuff in the background, is the one that you can't shut up by the end of it and it's just, you know, break your heart stuff. Like you, it brings a tear to your eye to see a, a student who um, – and, and at times people close to them will say, no, no, such and such can't ever do that. And they go through that process and at the end of it they present their kids teaching kids topic and often it might be just a small presentation in their community but at times they're presented to local governments, to politicians and what that has done is we call it head, heart and hand. I, mm-hmm. I um, got that uh, from one of my mum's social work books. Head, heart and hand means that, you know, they're often very passionate about the environment but they kind of, all right, what do I do? I'm fired up about this issue the head or the learning is the kids teaching kids process. So they research that topic inside now. We get them to research both sides of an argument so they're not just kind of going off on, you know, whatever the internet might say about it. Um, and then they use their voice to inspire action. So if they're looking at, you know, um, wetlands, for example, part of their project may be, well, um, part of my kids teaching kids project is we're going to actually plant new wetland species or rejuvenate a wetland um, you know, example was a, a young young child who their presentation was all about rubbish along waterways and they presented that to their local government. Um, the councillors got so passionate about the fact that these kids were passionate about it and um, what they did is they supported in kind with all the rubbish collection trucks to go down there and they pulled out 11 tonnes of rubbish in their local waterways. So, yeah, I think kids... It's heightening and sickening in equal measure. It, it, yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, look, exactly. I think um, if you're involved in the environmental space, you kind of go... The ups and downs are pretty pretty significant. But, um, you know, I, there's that quote, is that young people are less than 20% of the population but they're not 100% of our future. I, I agree with that. But what I've seen is they've got so much to offer right now. The way that they can talk about an issue which might have adults squaring off and going back to their patch and their belief system when you get, you know, a group of kids who know their stuff um, and present that to adults and kids alike, they can often get a completely different reaction where, where they can bring about change where perhaps there was, was an intractable difference. And you're talking about this with real passion. Um... Yeah, I get, I get on my soapbox a bit about young people because I just I think, um, you know, having seen it time and time again over the years... I come back to the fact that we did this for 20, over two, over two decades. I, by no means am I going to claim, you know, the Youth Climate Marches as, as, as ours solely, but what we had is student after student through that program. Lots of them went on to things like the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and if that's a legacy that Kids Teaching Kids has played even a small role in, because my belief is when those kids started to march in the streets, there was a holding of breath even from people who were involved in the sustainability movement going, oh, geez, I don't know about protests being the way that we should do this. But I think what those youth climate marches did was give the adults the freedom to start to speak up a bit too. And we are where we are now with Australia finally starting to turn its and take its place where it should be, which is one of the leaders in terms of renewable energy and climate action. We've still got a long way to go, but um, but we're seeing we're seeing some bright signs, and I think young people have have really driven a lot of that that conversation. Something you mentioned it reminded me of one of our previous guests, Ash Ross Handler, in a different way, and I'll explain the context of this, Aaron, which is. Ash runs a company called Good Company that helps uh, companies to identify charity partners and employee volunteering. And when he was talking, he was like, oh, my dad was a businessman and my mum was a social worker. And I was like, all right. And you kind of put the two together. And he was like, 
Oh, yeah, I suppose. I never really thought about it that way. <laughs> but when I hear you talk, it sounds like maybe those parental influences were Definitely. a more conscious and direct influence. Yeah, in yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I just think, you know, my parents have always been, uh, what do you call it, socially aware or, or involved in issues that they see are important. But when I think about – my mum was a teacher as well before she actually took a package in some, some more leaner years in the education system where things got a bit tougher. Um, and she'd actually done a, her social work degree at, at night and on the weekends, which I've got huge admiration for. That's a message, people. Lifelong learning <laughs> is really, really important. It gives you options even later in life. But, you know, I, I remember again vividly, and I, I actually talk about this as part of my own book, is – Mum and Dad were on Christmas Island where Mum was the social worker on Christmas Island and Dad was teaching English in the detention centre. Um, and uh, my brother and I went over there for two weeks and it's an extraordinary place. Like it's 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 almost like, you know, I mean it's an Australian, um, you know, it's part of Australia but it's not, right? Like it's it just feels like another world away. But I picked up a I picked up a number of Mum's texts, social work texts and psychology texts while I was there and a lot of that has informed kind of our approach to kids teaching kids and almost building out the the underpinning of the educational practices that dad uh, was well and truly across. So you, you, you're absolutely right from my perspective. It's, it's really the two different approaches of my parents that have built out both kids teaching kids but also I think the way I approach things as well in, in how I look at the world and, and what I, you know, what I see as important as well. And where do you think the entrepreneurial and, and leadership, particularly maybe the leadership bit came from? Because, you know, catchment management authority, entrepreneur or at least innovative in that they hadn't been around before you got your first job and you didn't stick with it long, right? You yeah, quite quickly yeah. went, I'm going to found this thing and you grew that. And then yeah. obviously you played leadership roles since then. Where It's a good question because, yeah, again, it's not like, you know, I think both my parents said when I was um, selling my car to start up, the Kids Teaching Kids program, they were both like, uh, I think you're in line for some really good promotion at the Mallee Catch Management Authority. And indeed the, the CEO had said, keep going here and one day you'll be a CEO of, of, of a Catch Management Authority. The leadership stuff definitely Dad has always led from the front in terms of um, being a principal and, you know, he's still got students that come up to him in the street calling him Mr Wood and they're 30 years old, you know, and, and talking about the impact that he's had on their lives. So um, that, that, that being out the front, the kind of leadership approach definitely was something I saw, particularly because I was at, you know, I was at his school, um, funnily enough with my brother because my brother was in prep, he, he would call him dad at school and all of the prep grade called him dad as well because they <laughs> thought that was his name, you know, like dad. Um, so... Um, yeah, that was, that was pretty funny stuff. But I, I think for me the entrepreneurial thing was not necessarily I want to start a business. It was I, I just was always coming up against something where I'm like, why is this barrier here or how do I break through that door or what do I need to do to kind of crash through and get something happening? That was, you know, why, you know, I think saw kids teaching kids and saw the opportunity there. But interestingly enough it was a colleague of mine who was actually – um, in my team. So he was reporting to me. Um, and I've got to give credit to Damien Heinze who uh, we would have many beers at a pub on Friday night and he would say, you know, we've got, th- we've got something here that, you know, education and, and, and taking what all these organisations were trying to do in engaging with their communities 
um, our original tagline was your voice is our business. You know what I mean? Like, to, does that sound like, you know, sort of the, a very early, early stage business? We even got our we, – we were so excited to start our business that we bought black suits from Roger David and then got them embroidered with our business name. Oh. So we, 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 thought, <laughs> we thought we'd made it, right? Um, so, so, look, Damien was, um, you know, always questioning, well, why don't we just go and do it ourselves? Um, and so it was a lot of conversations at the pub on a Friday night where before we took, finally took the leap of faith. And, you know, he was there in the early stages. He, he didn't stay, stay on for the long term. I think that happens in a lot of businesses but, you know, I do have to give him credit for some of those initial conversations for driving me to do something completely crazy and sell my car and start a business that I had no idea about. Did he sell his car? <laughs> we both sold you our cars. We, we literally both sold our cars and tipped in. I think I sold mine for 15 grand. So I think we had like, you know, I, it wouldn't be more than $30,000 to start this business. No idea about starting a business, of course. You know, these are back in the days of dial-up internet, so we're trying to get our, you know, our our office all hooked up with modems. And um, I remember we bought laptops, and this will show you how old it was. That we needed CD burners in these laptops because we were like copying a lot of stuff and handing it out. The CD burner laptop was seven and a half thousand dollars wow. per laptop. So wow. that was our biggest investment in the business in the early years was these two laptops. Yeah. I remember those days. The yeah. CD you, know what um, the, you know what the good thing about it was? Though? I, I sort of look back on them fondly a little bit because we'd go on the road, like working with schools in all sorts of parts of Australia and, you know, because there was this dial-up internet, it was absolutely woeful in rural Australia. So you were almost uncontactable except by, you know, mobile or maybe landline if, you know, going into each town. There was, there was none of this email traffic. So you'd go on the road and for two weeks you were just in the moment mm. – you know, delivering workshops to schools, skilling them up on the Kids Teaching Kids program and, and just, yeah, it, it, there's there's something I miss about those days of now we've got Teams and SMS and WhatsApp and every other thing clamouring for your attention. On, on that note, I, just sort of two things one on education and then sort of one on agency as well like i'm finding that there's this crossroads for education and for teachers especially about um how long have you been a teacher for 12 years now yeah right yeah and across all sectors and and primary secondary and they're they're fairly similar across the board there isn't one that's better across the board than any other um area and but there's the same sort of complaints that keep happening, which is that there's all this noise and external pressure and, and things that you've got to do and then there's the passion that you've got as a teacher to actually deliver. Yep. Not deliver education because it's the wrong word. It's as you said before, we're not there as lecturers. We should just be facilitating growth mm. and and something out of the students. And I love what, what um, you've been able to do because that's something that I think that we need to all do in education because... We shouldn't just be going to the to teach towards a test or just try to achieve something for the sake mm. of ticking a box, whether it's at in schools or in, in life in general. We need to feel like we're making a difference and we're agents of our of our own destiny in a way and, and contributing to society. So, I guess a question that to come out of this is, you know, in your life, it seems like you've become you've been able to feel like you can be an agent of your own. Uh, destiny in a way with with the decisions you've made and, and actions you've done 
and also you wanted to teach kids how to do that too. Was there something that we haven't touched on yet or a path that we haven't trod on uh, that, that explains a little bit more of how you felt, I don't know, confident enough or able to actually reach out, take a leap of faith and actually deliver for the purpose of, I guess, contribution rather than just mm. your, your own self? Oh, what a great question. I think that I talk about being in my 20s where um, I went through um, pretty serious bullying in high school. So there was a couple of years there which weren't or weren't, which weren't great, both physical and mental bullying. Um, and that got pretty serious. But apart from that, I had a pretty good, you know, primary school was a, was a, was a good experience for me, even though I probably got in trouble a few times, ended up in my dad's office. Um, we had a wonderful upbringing where we got to experience so much of the world because my parents did teaching exchanges. So we were one year in Montana in America and one year in Alaska in, wow. in, in, in America. Uh, on teaching exchanges. So that then I, I, I hit my 20s. I did pretty well at school. School, you know, I, learning came, came, came to me relatively easily. Um, relationships I had to work harder at. Uh, understanding people I had to work harder at. But probably in my 20s, you know, there was a few little hiccups along the way, but I, I reached um, a pretty good level very quickly in my early career. Um, then when kids teaching kids started, God, we just kicked goal after goal. Um, the, the business, well, the program itself won a lot of awards. Personally, I, w- I received, you know, the Prime Minister's Environmental Year Award, um, funnily enough, presented by Malcolm Turnbull at the time as, as Environment Minister. And I think a lot of us held out hope that with Turnbull in the seat that things were going to be amazing. But um, uh, that story continues to be written, doesn't it? Um, but we we ended up at at, um, at 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 my business winning the um, the t- 2012 Telstra News Limited Business of the Year Award, Micro Business of the Year Award. So everything was just wow, this is going well. I hit my thirties. I had a relationship breakup, and I was close to losing my house and losing my business. And so I think. Going back, the reason I had the confidence to kind of do these things initially was because, God, it was all working. So I felt really um, empowered that the, the, the decisions I'd made, the leaps of faith I'd made were, were really working. I think what got introduced after I hit an absolute wall and ended up on medication for depression was, and I hate to say this because it was an awful experience and got as bad as it gets basically without, you know, getting really bad that going through that point in my life brought a, a, a huge sense of humility, a, a massive increase in my emotional understanding. Uh, I'm really drawn to people going through difficult times, um, particularly with the Kids Teaching Kids program. I could see a kid in that class who was struggling with something and it almost became an overt mission to pick up the, the people who weren't doing so well um, and to defend them against the very confident person who who, um, you know, might not be not, – might not be so supportive of them. Um, so I wanted to teach people that, hey, you need to look out for others, you need to take care of yourself because otherwise you're no good to anyone else. And so in a way I think I'm a much better person now than I was even though we were winning all those awards in my 20s. I, I think going through what I've gone through has made me a better leader and, in fact, it wasn't till after all that happened that I then was elected to Melbourne City Council and I think that made me – a more well-rounded person. So in a way, although it was, you know, it was te- bloody terrible, um, you know, the benefit of hindsight and reflection because coming out of 
depression sent me on this pathway of trying to discover what was going to be my coping mechanism because I had severe panic attacks. Um, there were times when uh, there was a time when I was on live television on Channel Ten where literally the whole world froze, and you know it's 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 stuff that you probably read about all the time now where people have full breakdowns. And so I got to a stage where I was going to re- become a recluse. I was going to retreat from all the things I loved and I wasn't going to do them anymore because um, I actually went and got myself checked because I thought I'd broken my ribs because the pain in my chest was so bad and they said that that's that's severe anxiety. So that was the lasting <laughs> the lasting gift that, that that depressive episode gave me was the severe anxiety which took me a long time to be able to manage and to, to give myself to be not so hard on myself that that, 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 that didn't become an issue that, that you know was that you weren't able to get through. But what that did is my I went through um, being on medication, which I don't begrudge at all because it actually was a, a massive um, stopgap for me that got me through some pretty difficult times. I went and did um, hypnotherapy, you name it. I went and did group stuff. I did cognitive behaviour therapy. I did all this stuff. And interestingly at the time there was a – a letter that arrived in my inbox um, and the CEO of Vic Health at the time, Rob Moody, who, be- who went on to be the CEO of, of the Melbourne Storm and then went through difficult times there as well. But he'd sent me stuff because he, our story had been covered on ABC Australian Story and they were really interested in the, the dynamic between Dad and I and it was actually called Rising Sun, S-O-N, and one of, was one of the top rating uh, ABC Australian Stories of all time, all about the Kids Teaching Kids program and the journey. But... That was before I went through my really difficult time and hit the wall. So he must have seen something there, right? And so he had written a handwritten letter from Professor Rob Moody and he had attached this Vipassana meditation pamphlet. And at the time I must have seen something in it because I read it and I was like, oh, yeah, based on scientific principles, you know, um, all it is about is observing the body and um, has all these amazing impacts. Um, and I put it in my inbox and left it in there. Um, and it wasn't until I hit rock bottom and then was starting to come out of that in 2007 that I did my first Vipassana meditation course. I don't know if you guys know. Yeah. About, yeah. <laughs> it's I always like to do the most extreme thing I can do. So even my meditation was extreme. So um, you, you, you do 10 days, you don't talk you don't look at other people and you meditate from 4.30 in the morning till, I've got to remember the timetable, 4.30 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night. Um, and the, you wouldn't believe that meditation can be a physical undertaking but when you're sitting for those long periods, every old footy injury, every kind of pain in my body, you know, starts to, starts to scream pretty loudly. But the amazing thing about this, this practice is all you're doing is observing your body and – when you when you haven't got the technique, an hour feels like ten hours, and you know once the pain comes, you st- it's really difficult. But once you just start to observe your body, what it does is it just brings you to living in the moment. Your body then does these amazing things and starts to re- you know it's it, it's just hard to explain, but it starts to repair you. People have done it and stopped migraines and you know people and all this stuff, right? And I'm a, I'm a skeptical person when it comes to this stuff. You know, I was this a bit hippie or what's going on? But that is literally my coping mechanism. So to this day, I've done about 10 10-day courses. I've done how many three-day courses where I go sit up in a hill in the uh, in at Wurri Yellick outside of Melbourne. Um, my wife's supportive and says, see you later and, and we'll see you in 10 days' time. Um, and to this day, the, the way I know that this works for me is what really got to me when I was 
at my lowest was um, the anxiety stopped me sleeping. So the insomnia started to kick in and then it's just a vicious spiral that you've not got no sleep so your thinking and thought patterns aren't your own um, and then you get down on yourself because you can't sleep and then that just keeps spiralling as well. So if I do my meditation because, it, it, you know, being worked up about things is just part of life, right? Um, but that coping mechanism for me is if I go home after a really rough period and, geez, there was some pretty tough times in my time, uh, I had to acting Lord Mayor for the City of Melbourne in some pretty difficult circumstances. If I go home and do my meditation uh, and I do an hour, I can go straight to sleep after that meditation. Now, to me, that is just an amazing thing. I don't, you know, I don't profess to understand all of the scientific principles that underpin meditation, but, God, there's a lot of reports now that say what it does for you and how it helps you. And just for our listeners, you mentioned a particular kind of meditation that you undertook. So yeah, it's it's called the passion of meditation, and it's been around for for a long, long, long time. The bit I like about it is it's got it's not religious. It's not you know, it's it's very basic in its nature, um, but quite profound in its impact. But look again, you know, any type of meditation where you know all of them, you know, the underpinning of it is you know you either observe your breath or you observe your body. Uh, just about any form of meditation has that as the underpinning. Um, and what happens is by bringing your body into that moment, it releases your, your it releases your mind and body to start. Like so I got, I've got a lot of pain from – I wasn't a very good footballer but I, I, I ran into a lot of people while I played <laughs> football. <laughs> so I've got a lot of pain points and, and sitting at a computer all day I also get really, you know, tense through the shoulders, headaches and, and stuff up through my neck. And the amazing thing about this is it's hard to explain but you're doing a mental thing for yourself and as you get into that, deeper into that meditation period, all of a sudden, you know, this pain point in your neck will just pop and it will have, I, I call it, you know, it's mind massaging you with your mind. It's just, it's, it's yeah, it's pretty um, amazing stuff. So if I do a, a, an hour of meditation, when I come out of that, not only do I feel very calm in terms of my mind but my body, all the aches and pains in my body have have released as well. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, it's just – it's extraordinary. Yeah, I've never done the the full 10 days or three days, but I've done a little bit and Vipassana was the the, the, the style. And is metta involved in that? Yes. Like loving kindness? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and that's a great way to sort of get over the relationship issues and, and things like that as well. Um, what you were saying then resonated so deeply with me and I know we talked about that with your book and how early off air, like that – these stories resonate and, and it's it's really powerful for me because I don't know if I've talked to you, Toby, about it, but recently and in the past a few panic attacks have come my way and initially I went to hospital thinking I was having a heart attack and I don't which know. Is, which is really common. Yeah, I, yeah. Like I woke up one night, my daughter, who's two and a bit now, she was probably a few months old and I just she just I think was crying. I woke up and I was like, I'm dizzy. I'm, I need to have a shower. Was walking to the shower, and just said, "I'm sweating profusely, for, yep. like everything." And it was just in the middle of the night, no reason that I could think of. And yeah, ended up um, telling Lauren, "I'm I'm dying. I'm having a heart attack here. I'm I'm out. Like, yep. call an ambulance." And she's like, "Are you serious?" Like, <laughs> and she saw that I was white as a ghost, so she got Alyssa and you know, and I just basically called the ambulance myself. Was talking as I was talking, I started thinking I couldn't be talking like this if I'm having a heart attack, but. They came in less than two minutes, you know, ambulance wait times were all right at the time, I, I'm glad to say. Um, and, yeah, they were there and they did all the tests and a few hours later, released from hospital, they said I had some intercostal muscle damage from moving a fridge early in the day, yep. which didn't help. But 
it was definitely that feeling of like crushed, like pain. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've had a few since and um, I had one the other day that was coming on that wasn't the heart anymore and I think my body is saying, or that the chest is saying, we know that you know you're on to me. I'm We're going to do it, something different. Oh, it's going to be your head this time. And I was like, I'm having a stroke this time. Like, <laughs> you know what? That, that self-talk is, is, you know, in, in the way I can laugh at it now, right? It's really it's really confronting and terrible at the time. But, you know, it, I, it, I, I'm probably going to sound like a crazy person now, but I'd talk to myself and go, oh, yeah, good one. So you got me with that yeah. now, you know? Oh, like. yeah, that's how I feel. Like you talk to your body like that, yeah. yeah, yeah. So have you had any with those experiences? Because when I um, was meditating, doing some flotation tank stuff and yep. – Seeing so I can try and I, I want to vouch for Sam Harris waking up the podcast and his um, his meditation app as well, which helped me a lot. And Nick, Nick Brax is amazing too. Okay, like again, like a really high profile young guy, seemingly all the world at his feet, mm. and you know he's gone through his own struggles, and he's just a really decent guy, and he's got a, a fantastic podcast just on. You know how to how to actually um, you know, look after yourself and yeah. do things a bit differently. It's, it's just so important, and and like yourself, probably thinking you're on top of the world and invincible at a stage, and yep. then when it hits, you're like, how could this be the case? Yep. That yeah, and I guess it's digging deeper. But with your meditation, and I know we've got to get onto some other topics. But with your meditation, have you felt any sort of? Because I I know I have in flotation tanks and and meditating that some sort of experiences that just can't be explained you know like not spiritual necessarily but your body oh yeah 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 mind um and again it it affects everyone quite quite differently as well but the the stuff that is just kind of surreal is is you know something that you've you know has been an issue it could have been an old injury or whatever it might be and you might have you know taken medication for it or gone and got physio or whatever the sort of trying to treat the kind of physicality of it um, and then you go through this for passion meditation process and all of a sudden that thing that you were trying to sort out sorts itself out. So, uh, again, you know, I'm not saying I'm, – I'm not professing again at all to say, you know, get rid of all medication, do all this sort of stuff. That's not my message. It's just the body has an amazing ability to heal itself if you let it. Um, and what we do in our daily lives is we don't let it, you know. We sit at a desk all day. We stress ourselves out with all sorts of information coming our way. Then for a break we sit on our phones watching how good everyone else's life is, you know, <laughs> sit in traffic, whatever it is, and then wonder why we're not we're not going well. I think the other big thing for me was um, all these number of things, you know. It was all the simple stuff you think about, go for a walk, eat healthy, try and get your – you know, all these things played together. But definitely the meditation for me is almost that coping tool that allows me to deal with really still – you know, some pretty stressful situations, you know, for people going in front of a camera or emceeing on stage or stuff, they're like, give me anything but that, you know. So the other thing I had to realise was um, because I, I I literally would, you know, when I was at my lives, I was calling myself pathetic, you're a pathetic, you know, you are pathetic. Like that was the self-talk. You're pathetic, you can't do this anymore. Why aren't you strong enough to deal with this? And you got to flip that and you actually got to say, you know, getting up on stage or sitting in a meeting where things are tough it is natural to feel stress. You will start to feel, you know, maybe a little bit of sweat or you might feel a bit hot or you might – because what would happen to me is as soon as I'd start to sweat or anything, like that would just magnify it. I'd be like, oh, everyone can see me down there sweating and going crazy and I must be so red in the face and all this sort of stuff. So the the self-talk has to change to 
it's natural to feel this way, it's okay to feel this way, you've got some coping mechanisms, you know, once you're through this situation you might need to do a bit of meditation or whatever it is. Um, you've just got to go a bit easier on yourself. You know, any employer that comes into the Clean Energy Council now, you know, the, the, the energy sector is so complex. The first thing I say to every employer that comes into the Clean Energy Council is go easy on yourself, take the pressure off. There's nothing that you have to do that's amazing in the first first few months you're here. Take the time to learn, learn things and, and just ease into the organisation because I think um, what I've noticed in the progression of my career is that there was some there was some, you know, tough roads to cross early on, you know, starting your own business, all this kind of stuff. But the level of work volume now and the level of expectation that we place on people, I think it's no wonder that people, you know, it's, you know, you talk to someone and if they've been in a, in a job for two years, wow, you've been there for a long time. That's that's great, you know. <laughs> Whereas, um, you know, the, I think the burnout rate and just the, geez, I can't do this anymore, I'm going to need to do something different. Um, there's something in that. We might need to dial down the amount of stuff we're throwing at each other. We might need to dial down the level of expectation and we might need to – there's a there's a book that I'm supposed to – I should read about like clearing all the noise. I can't remember the, the name of it off the top of my head but it's something like all of the stuff that we have, you know, the reminders, the things pinging at us and what that does – Stolen focus? I, yes, yeah, so, and Harry, I was going to mention it? it before. We've yeah, yeah, we've read it. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, it's literally the funny thing is about stolen focus is I haven't found the time to read stolen <laughs> focus. Yeah. Well, my, my equivalent, which I think is worse, is I lost the seven habits of highly effective people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> love it, um, love it. Uh, I, I, I just want to touch my last little bit on this with stolen focus. It's a great book. Do it. But in it, it talks about the idea of medicating and the over-medication that occurs with anxiety and depression as well. And it talks about the environmental factors that we've just got to improve. Like our external and internal dialogue and and life is the pressure. And we constantly look to medicate, whether it's prescription or non-prescription or legal or illegal, whatever it might be, we're we're looking for an answer. And and the answer should be from each other, Mm. as you say, to to give each other some slack and, and to cut each other some slack, I guess. And and what you're in the – I don't know, how, how old are you now? What am I? I got, do you know what? I've got to that stage where I forget <laughs> how old I am. That, that's showing. At least you're over 30. <laughs> All right, you're over 30. I'm, I think I'm 47 oh. and I think I'm turning 48 this year. Okay, okay. Yeah. Sorry to, you know, reveal that to the to the world. But, I'm, um, but, but you know, look, I'm feeling very young. Yes. Young at heart. So in that time, I mean, you've come out of difficult periods and – you're, you're saying that you want to um, – you've, you've come up with some of the solutions to problems on a personal level and even the way you interact with people at the Clean en- Energy Council. But is there a, a little – I don't know, a few um, dot points of like what would you do to what, – or what would you say to people that are in control of an organisation or in, in control of some people or, you know, in, in front of leading people, I should say, mm. that can – help keep people from burning out and this yeah. this pain that we're all in look I, I i've i've got a list of things where i think we could do a lot better on um and and a lot of that is around just how many meetings we have how many emails that get sent there's not a day that goes by where there isn't a different communications channel that someone tells me oh you've got teams now you're on slack now you're on this now and it's just like okay guys guess let's just have a conversation face to face how about that um so i think we make things very complex when they could be really, really simple. I think things like getting people to take breaks throughout the day, they're just really simple stuff. You know, go and do a walking meeting, 
get your team to go out there to a local, if there's local parkland or whatever it might be outside, get them out in nature. These things have a real impact. I just come back to the fact that we, we, we make everything more complex rather than aiming for the simplest approach that we can take with things. And I'm not sure things like email have actually really, you know, they might be great for keeping a record of something and you can say, I sent you that email. So, you know, (laughs) you didn't do what I wanted you to do. But I do wonder how much things like email and constant communications channels, if we get to the end point and maybe it's delivering an event or delivering a project, once we get to deliver that event or project, I'd love to look back and go, how much value did the 50,000 emails that we sent in this period actually add to that? Or could we have simply said we're going to meet on a semi-regular basis, not weekly, not daily, semi-regular basis, and in between we're just going to talk with each other. I'm going to come around and see you at your workstation or I'm actually going to, you know, pick up the phone. I don't mind, again, if it's Teams. I'm actually just going to talk to you. Um, Yes, it's important to document and have processes and all those sorts of things. Um, but they don't need to be overly complex or overly burdensome and that we've got to deal more with each other as people and and deal with each other more in a person-to-person sense than through all of these channels and devices and, yeah. I'd love to pick up a kind of conversation around the difference between accountability and trust and I think that's a big part of what underlying that. We trust each other less in many ways Mm. while demanding that we should prove We've done something more. My dad loves this thing like, you know, he's got lots of great sayings. And I I think he got this one from D. Hock who was actually – he was the man behind Visa, right, but didn't start out as a credit card to make money off lots of people. It was much more egalitarian than that. Um, But I think he talks about, you know, there's the Statue of Liberty on one side of the coast and needs to be the Statue of Responsibility on the other side of the coast, right? Um, But I think you're right, accountability and responsibility there – they're often you often make people accountable without giving them the means to make the calls on the things that can make calls on. So I think I'd probably add that to the mix that genuine responsibility for delivering something and being hand, held accountable for it, but giving them the tools to make the calls that they need to make within you know parameters that that are appropriate. Which is not a deliberate segue, but you could draw from that to go. So what about politics? <laughs> Where you spent quite a bit of your so career. Would you just throw the accountability and responsibility <laughs> out the window? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, I'm leaving you to fill in the blanks, Sam. But somewhere in this you transitioned to politics and, you know, a successful career in local government and so on. So what was the move into that and, and how would you describe mm. your time Again, this has been something where I think if you've got, you know, if you're half decent in a country town, you start getting approached. So from a young age, I had every political party approach me for state and federal politics. So they could, I, I liked the fact that they couldn't work out where my politics um, lay because I would make decisions based on I'd read up about something and hopefully take a balanced position and sometimes that seemed to be... Uh, a National Party position, sometimes that seemed to be a Labor Party position, sometimes it was a Greens or Liberals um, and I think in some ways that, you know, trying to define someone's views by uh, a political party gets us into a, into a lot of trouble. So I said no a lot in my younger years and a lot of that was actually about me not wanting to be exposed. Uh, I didn't want people knowing about who I was privately. I didn't want to be on, on the front page of a, of a paper, you know, coming out of a pub after, after I played footy or whatever. I had a 
somewhat of a dim view of politics as well. Um, but again, as time went on, I met some good people in politics and um, what they were able to achieve on some pretty significant issues started to, to turn the tide a little bit. And I never stopped being that person that yelled at the television going, oh, why did you do that or say this? You know, I could do a much better job. And I think you eventually get to a stage where it's put up or shut up. You know, uh, I think the that people who um, spend their whole lives just shouting about what's wrong but never actually throw their hat in the ring, uh, I haven't got a lot of respect for them. Um, I think if you're going to criticise and critique, that's that's fine if it's, you know, it's about trying to move things forward. But if you're not kind of doing something yourself to advance the issue that you're you're pushing on, then, yeah, I think sometimes you've got to, in my view, it was put up or shut up. Um, and... Uh, City of Melbourne was seen as a way of dipping my toe in the water to see whether or not I would potentially want to go on to, you know, um, state or federal politics. Um, it was never about the politics for me. In fact, it was the opposite. I loved uh, solving someone's problem. You know, a ratepayer would call up and say this issue, that issue. It could be as simple as, you know, my, my, my willy bin's not getting collected or, you know, there's, there's a problem with my sidewalk. But, you know, more serious issues where... You know, young family, they had people shooting up uh, heroin in their back alleyway. Um, they were feeling unsafe. It wasn't a good situation. They'd called lots of different agencies, called people, trying to ask for help. And she eventually called me and I said, cool, I'll come come see you and I'm going to come with my compliance officers and uh, also some of the um, command from Melbourne East Police Station um, because I'd meet with them uh, on a fortnightly or, or weekly basis at times. And I'll also bring the salvos just in case there's any issues there. And she's like, you're coming out on site? And I go, yeah. So we literally went out and she told us the story. Our officers were able to look at installing CCTV and from there um, the salvos were able to identify that the the people who were um, shooting up were known to them, um, get them help that they needed uh, and police were able to play a a strong role in that as well. Um, The solving the problem was a really... I loved that um, and then I loved significant projects like the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project. Um, you know, it was at a time when the renewable energy target was on the chopping block. Policy around um, renewable energy was awful. Um, policy around climate change was awful and what we decided was, well, why do we have to wait until all this policy lines up? You know, we spend money on electricity. A lot of these other people spend money on electricity. So um, you know, I was really proud to lead the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project where we went, well, let's just go to market and buy, a re- buy renewable energy instead of fossil fuel energy. It wasn't as simple as that. It was about three years in the making. <laughs> but what we did is we brought together City of Melbourne and 14 other, uh, 13 other organisations like Melbourne Zoo and, and National Australia Bank and um, various other local governments and the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Bureau um, and we pulled our electricity and we went out to tender. And what that did was build a wind farm just outside of a regional town in Victoria, um, in Ararat. And it took City of Melbourne 100% renewable for its operations. Um, but probably more importantly, we documented a guide on how we did the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project and we made that freely available. In just the other day, I was, you know, reading stuff from New Zealand where a thousand megawatts. Um, renewable energy development was was a result of a group purchase agreement. And uh, the quote in there from um, the New Zealand representative was, you know, we saw what the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project did and we thought, well, why can't we just do that? So 
Um, yes, it did amazing things for Melbourne and for other energy users um, and for the regional town where 140 jobs were created. Um, but what its probably biggest success was how many other group power purchase agreements for renewable energy that it's driven. So that shows you the power of politics that if you uh, get that opportunity and you grab it with both hands, you've got an amazing convening power. You've got all of these fantastic officers who work for the organisation who seek that leadership that they can then get behind. So that was, you know, a real coming together of some excellent brains in City of Melbourne, um, various other organisations. Pacific Hydro were the partner there who who delivered the project and they were just extraordinary. And um, it's got to be my, you know, my proudest moment beyond kids teaching kids in terms of my career. Yeah, that's fabulous. And obviously now you're with the Clean Energy Council, so sort of very much still in that renewables and beyond space. Just as we, I'm conscious of your time and as we kind of begin to get to the end, but just to round out this part, how would you articulate kind of where we're at in Australia and, you know, I know you take a kind of a broader perspective on these things internationally around the climate change piece, the energy piece. Where are we at? How would you characterise it right now? I think we have got an amazing success story in our rooftop solar. You know, over 3 million households with rooftop solar on their roof. So that's mums, dads, whoever going... Here in Australia. In Australia. So saying, I'm just going to invest in in rooftop solar because I'm going to save some money and I'm going to do my bit for the environment. You know, in terms of large scale, we we actually started off well because a lot of um, hydropower was actually implemented in Australia, you know, very early on if you you look at Tasmania and where it's up to. Uh, But unfortunately, we lost a decade of the climate wars which impacted our renewable energy transition severely. I think we're back on the right track. I think state governments did a lot of heavy lifting in the absence of, of national leadership. Uh, but we're not there yet. So I think we're, you know, up over 35%, 36 37% renewables as a share of, of the overall uh, electricity use in Australia. That still means there's a heck of a lot of brown coal and gas in the system. Um, we need to accelerate that transition um, if you look at the government targets, you know, 82% renewables by 2030. 2030 ain't far away, right? So there's a big build like nothing we've seen before in terms of more large-scale solar, large-scale wind, more rooftop solar and storage. Storage large-scale is going to play a significant role because of the variability that we've got. But the transmission build-out is going to be significant as well, you know. So over 10,000 kilometres of transmission lines to get this energy where it's generated to where it's where it's being used. So I think... Where we're at too is is the global um, landscape has changed with things like the Inflation Reduction Act, similar sorts of announcements, basically huge green subsidy schemes for renewable energy and clean energy transitions um, that have been mimicked in, you know, the, the EU, in Japan, the UK. The announcements just keep coming where you've gone through this era of free market, free market, free market, then, now nah, guess what? Kicked off the back of the Inflation Reduction Act, which when you look at the numbers, because it's uncapped, it could be $800 billion worth of subsidy we're talking for all sorts of clean energy, electric vehicles, green manufacture. That's an industrial policy on the scale you've never seen before. Fantastic for the global transition. But what does that mean for Australia? What does that mean for the competition for for the people to build our energy transition? What does it mean for the kit that we have to buy, the wind turbines, the solar panels and all these sorts of things? So I'm very optimistic about where we're up, up to at the moment. Um, the, the renewable energy transition is accelerating, but we've got to double the amount of renewable energy that we're building each year to meet our targets. 
and there's significant challenges with workforce, with supply chain, with global policy. So, yeah, we're advocating for a clean energy superpower master plan. This is going to take the best of Australia lining up all of our things, our skills and training, our education, as I said, our supply chain, um, all levels of government working hand in glove with with industry um, to get this right. And to end this uh, podcast, Aaron, we ask a question every episode. Uh, The name of the podcast is Moments of Clarity. So, you know, have you had a moment of clarity uh, that you can talk about today that has made a change and a profound impact in in the way that you do things today that you haven't mentioned already? Oh, that's a good question. Have I had a moment of clarity? Um, my, I guess my moment of clarity that that ha- that helps me and hopefully helps me be a better leader in 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 terms of the, the organisation I'm in now, hopefully it helps me be a better parent and a better partner, is just that, yes, there's a lot riding on what we do and, you know, if you think about the clean energy transition and addressing climate change, you know, there's a heck of a lot riding on it. But you've got to see things in a light which is I'll do my best, I'm going to put in a, a big effort, but I'm not going to um, ride myself into the ground if I if I don't achieve every goal, deliver everything perfectly, if I make a mistake. we just got to take the pressure off ourselves a bit. So my, my moment of clarity each day, and, and it often happens at weird times, it might be just before I'm you know, climbing into bed at night or I've done my meditation and I come out of that because I've had a really stressful day and it takes that break in the day for me to just go, all right, this isn't, we're not, the world is not ending just yet, right? <laughs> like, um, And I think certainly, you know, my, my kids are just, you know, they help me greatly in terms of a bit of perspective on the world. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It's been, it's been brilliant. Thank you, Aaron. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, The biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website moc-pod.com or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.